And greetings and welcome to the Mount Rushmore podcast. My name is Jeff and I'm joined as always by my good buddies, Richard. Hello. And Michael. Howdy. Richard and Michael, they debate, deliberate the most ubiquitous aspects of many different topics. And this week, it is very esoteric. This is the Mount Rushmore of songs that exist only in TV or movies. Now, this topic was suggested by me, Jeff, based on, gosh darn it, I'll admit it, something I saw on TikTok. People were <laughs> talking about TikToking about songs that they saw in movies or TV that are songs that exist in that world, not part of the score or soundtrack. So uh, I thought it'd be a fun thing to debate. We've come to this, guys, 251 episodes in and <laughs> getting inspiration from- No, to TikTok, yeah. <laughs> Ch China, a Chinese uh, social media um, identity theft. The communists so, finally got you, Jeff. Yeah, they finally got me. We knew they would. We knew they would. Yeah. Uh, but you guys uh, love uh, movies and uh, TV and uh, music, so maybe it'll work out. So uh, I believe the last time I put somebody on the spot, it might have been Richard. So let's go with Michael as the first person. Okie dokie. Well, what I did, um, I didn't make a category, but I just set a couple of ground rules. One, I didn't choose anything that was from like a musical because I okay. felt like Me that either. was a whole, no. a whole special sort of thing that was just like oh okay musical yeah and um eh, that might have been it if i think of what the other rules are as i approach them and break them then <laughs> i guess I'll, I'll let you know um but my first <laughs> but my first choice is the cantina song from the movie star wars oh that's fun by by figure and dan and the modal nodes and um, <laughs> what I liked about this piece of music is... Hello, it's not John Williams. It's Baker <laughs> and Dan and a modal note. Well, the uh, a, name that was the, a name that was given to them uh, years and years after, um, you know, the release of the movie that was probably either given to them in the book uh, Tales from the Moss Eisley Cantina, um. or it was developed in one of like the trading card games or something that they did in like kind of this 10 year span after star Wars had come and gone where it was just like filling in the gaps. But what I love about this song is one it's um, it's within the scene. It is also just so it's, it's three aspects. One it's within the scene. So it's uh, what's that term? Um, uh, I sound like a dumbass. Oh, I'm going to come. Uh, I mean, it's like Latin for from in the thing. Yeah, mise en scene, not mise en scene. No, no. D uh, it begins with a D. It's here. Let me let me go back. I'll, we can I'll, I can come back to that. So what I love about this song in particular is that there, it has three aspects. One, it's within the scene itself. So it's not just like this, you know, John Williams score that's running through this movie that nobody hears. It's your, it's playing by an actual band in this cantina. Two, it pops into the scene where. Um, you know, um, Obi-Wan tells Luke, oh, it's a, this place is a real, it's a real dirty shithole. So just watch your step. <laughs> and then immediately, you know, this triangular headed alien pops up and the music plays at the exact same time. And it just kicks in and you're just like, you're in it. This is, you suddenly become Luke Skywalker, this moment where you walk in and this loud, awful music is playing and these fucked up creatures that you know have all like these horrible 1950s you know like bug masks are all around <laughs> and uh like you're just as confused as he is i you know he lives on this planet but i don't know how much time he spends in like in like the the shitholes in moss Eisley. and the third thing i just love about the song is it's just so different from everything else within star wars like you know, the music is very classical and very grand and very sweeping. And it's this music and really like one of the songs in like Jabba's Palace played by, you know, the Max Rebo band that are just like these real outliers uh, in these in these movies. And they try to kind of recapture the essence of this song with the Jabba's Palace song and later on in, um, uh, in like The Force Awakens and other things. But this song is just so, it's just so good and so unique and so just strange and it feels strange it feels strange within a strange universe well that's a fun 
That's a fun observation, and it's fun to even discuss what this, the unfolding origami whateverness of Star Wars, and when you first saw it, that it was already a universe that didn't explain itself, and then within it, it takes a broad shift um, to to introduce us when we walk into this cantina. To, to Luke, it's a whole new world, and uh, to us, it certainly is too. Wow, that's a lot of fun. I would also say it's it's his. I, this was probably the first Star Wars thing that I bought with my own money as a kid was the 45 to this song mm. <laughs> when I was a little kid. And I think to I, song? the song, and I think I liked it because it was reminiscent of a 1920s song, or it felt very Charlie Chaplin-y or something. There was something Dixieland or something, or early jazz about it. Um, I guess Johnny, Johnny Williams was also a jazzer too, so. Yeah, there's something very foreign but familiar about it. <laughs> I'm still trying to think of the word that starts with a D or the, the trying to think of the word that means from the from the oh it's, we, we uh, cut that out. Yeah, that's okay. Okay. No, uh, I like I, I like this choice because it just makes me wonder if this is what passes as pop music <laughs> yeah. in the Star Wars world. Is this like their version of bubblegum pop? Yeah. The, the type of music is called jizz wailing. So <laughs> you can just go with it. They couldn't just say jazz. They had to just change it. They had to add one change of a vowel and yeah. it was the most unfortunate. It couldn't have been jazz. It couldn't have been like <laughs> gaz. It's jizz, J-I-Z-Z. Uh, so funny. So funny. I do wonder if George Lucas, uh, when he was sitting down and Johnny Williams was playing this song for him, went, What? This is what they're listening to. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Faster and more. Di diegetic. Diegetic. Oh, cool. Okay. That means, yeah. Got, I'll got there. Okay. All right, uh, Manfredi, what's your first choice? All right. <clears throat> My uh, first choice is a song by Britain's loudest band. Oh, wow. Spinal Tap. <laughs> All right. And uh, that song is Big Bottom. Oh, nice. <laughs> one of their uh, crowd-pleasing favorites. Um, I don't know how much I need to really defend this one. It's just, <laughs> you know, it's uh, the lyrics are so stupid clever. Yeah. Which is something that you find in a lot of the Christopher Guest. I mean, I could have had a whole, I kind of wanted to make sure that I had one Christopher Guest mm -hmm. musical song choice ah, in yeah, there yeah um and this was the one that i mean the, a lot of choices i don't i don't want to spoil it in case mm -hmm. michael has any but there's a lot of choices we, i could have gone from with this but this one for me is just the perfect mix, mix of the lyrics that are so dumb but you have to be really smart to write those dumb lyrics yeah you know i think uh t-bone burnett said that if you're writing a song for a movie that's supposed to be someone else's song even if it's supposed to be a bad song you still need to make it a good song Oh, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if Big Bottom is supposed to be a good song or a bad song. I know it's a banger. I know that. <laughs> I know that. I know that. I know that any song where you've got three people playing bass. Yeah. <laughs> is going to be a winner in this bass player's book. Um, oh, that's and, fun. You know, and it's, I, I, it even within the context of the world of Spinal Tap. Where a lot of their, a lot of their other songs are very pretentious, and kind of this sort of rock and roll taking itself too seriously, like mm -hmm. Stonehenge. Yeah, this is clearly supposed to be a a, a novelty type song and something mm -hmm. they're having fun with. Yeah, and I think that that that's other than you know beyond the fact that it's like I said, just the the puns and the the wordplay is just so dumb and so perfect. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that it's supposed to be such a fun song within the world of Spinal Tap is why it's sort of become this, it, it's, it's kind of stood the test of time, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think yeah. it was directly inspired by um, Queen's Fat Bottom Girls? I think that was certainly one of the songs that, yeah. that, that inspired it, yeah. I, I could see... Uh the Bon Scott lyrics in Big Balls, uh, some of the Bon Scott ACDC mm. yeah. stuff might be. And I, I imagine even though they were skiffle, uh, uh, a skiffle group to begin with, 
um, they consider themselves to have blues roots. And there's nothing uh, more bluesy than a song about a derriere, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I yeah. mean, you know, you'll go all the way back to uh, Give Me Some Money, which is like the mm-hmm. their version of the Stones <laughs> doing like a doing a, a blues sort of jam. Yeah. yeah. And you kind of can extrapolate that all the way up to big bottom and i can't believe i'm being so scientific talking about yeah big bottom well it is fun to me the spinal tap existed in a world that was achingly familiar yet some of the music was very or unique uniquely familiar and also like you write that it does it does dwell in the scatological yet you know they had to work hard to make it so dumb like it, it gets so much dumbness into that you'd have to work pretty hard um my baby fits me like a flesh, flesh tuxedo, tuxedo. <laughs> gonna sink her with like my to sink you with my pink torpedo <laughs> yeah it's i mean like i said it's i i remember being a kid and the first time that might have been the thing the thing i laughed hardest at when i was like eight or nine the first yeah. time i watched spinal tap because i was eight or nine and talking about butts is the funniest thing you could possibly do yeah and that hasn't changed really i shouldn't (laughs) say eight or nine still to this day clearly works yeah oh definitely uh okay uh winfield what's your second choice well i will stay within the harry sheer um combined dark universe and uh a (laughs) kiss at the end of the rainbow Oh, that's from, a wonder. Oh, wow. Okay. From uh, Mitch and Mitchie from the movie A Mighty Wind. And maybe it's just because um, we watched this um, a couple weeks ago and um, Emily had never seen it. And it's just so fresh in my mind. Um, I really wanted to um, at first choose um, the song Old Joe's Place by yeah. the Folksmen, the Harry Shear, Michael McKean, e. and Christopher Guest. E at, at, at O's. It's just so silly. <laughs> But maybe I was just feeling a little um, uh, touched and melancholic by how how well uh, Catherine O'Hara and uh, Eugene Levy pull off like this kind of estranged um, couple with like, you know, singing this big heartbreaking breakout song that everyone is just dying to see mm-hmm. be performed. It's not just that like, it, it's, a, it's this thing that they've built up within the movie to be like this real special moment between the two characters, but then also everyone in the audience. And then also all of the people performing within like this kind of reunion is that they're waiting to see if there is like this kiss between them. And uh, it's just such a, it's a, it's a sweet song. And um, it's, you know, like the opposite, <laughs> it's like the exact opposite of um, um, big bottom. Big bottom where it's super meaningful <laughs> and ha- just is this real big connective point. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's just that uh, Eugene in the movie where Eugene Levy just goes in and out of like this transcendental state of mind where he looks insane one minute and then on stage he's performing and he's just normal. And then as soon as the song's over, his eyes glaze over and <laughs> they look North and South again. And you're just like, <laughs> how does he do it? Oh Yeah. Uh, I feel like that it did the history, the alternate history of folk that is depicted in that film. It reminds me, this is the only thing I can think of is Galaxy Quest, where everything about Mm. Galaxy Quest is absolutely right about Star Trek, yet it's all one tick off just a little bit. And the idea of these aging folkies coming to town hall for one last show and this guy who's probably not too different than maybe Seymour Stein or trying to think if like people who were uh, um, heads of that folk movement and and um, yeah and then the idea that there were these sweethearts of folk that could have been it's almost like if they one was Bob Dylan one was Joan Baez yet he's playing one of them somewhat kind of like Jerry Garcia uh, but yeah, everything about that was so sweet and tender. And it almost reminds me of that moment. Uh, you know, what's his head? Um, uh, Christopher Guest played on stage with Bob Dylan, the real Bob Dylan, during the real folk mu- movement. So he has real actual roots as performing uh, back then. So it almost seems like some of that authenticity rubs off on that 
that movie because I think the Main Street Singers are going are supposedly the new Christy Minstrels or yeah. something like that, and obviously the the Folksmen or the Kings Kings Kingston Trio or something. But uh, yeah, the authenticity that they nail so much, even though they're playing these characters so broadly. Yeah. And then Catherine O'Hara is is a shadow of herself when she is scenes later playing at a ostomy continence convention where her new husband sells um, colostomy bags or something, <laughs> playing the auto harp. Um, yeah, that's so, so beautiful. Real- reality comes crashing back. Yeah. After such a majestic moment. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, but I think me, a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the, um, sorry, a lot of like the Christopher Guest films have that moment, that end mm-hmm. sense of like, you've reached, you've reached the pinnacle, like in, oh, the uh, best in show. Yeah. I was just going to mention that. Yeah. Best in show. They have a similar moment where things just kind of come back to reality for, for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with waiting for Guffman. It's all of a sudden the director, Corky St. Clair, is selling yeah tchotchkes in new york he's, he's gotten out of the business or whatever and each one of them had this moment where like the you know the um the peak has happened in these people's lives and then mm-hmm. it, it all goes back to some mm-hmm. sense of normalcy or subnormalcy. yeah yeah i really thought if you're going christopher guest i i thought you were going to go with the uh doing it doggy style song at the end of uh best in show but also a great choice i love this choice i remember watching the movie and being genuinely affected which is not something that you typically are in a christopher guest film i don't think he's really going for what i know about christopher guest he's someone who's is very dry and mm-hmm. has a very like clinical look at what at, to try to approach what's funny and what isn't and i don't know that he normally goes after big emotions but for whatever reason, I remember watching that that last scene, and you're waiting for like the the gag to show up. Yeah, there mm-hmm. isn't one. There's no there's no joke there. It's it's, yeah. it's done seriously. My Christopher Guest story. Yeah, um, Jeff Cass. I had a short film in the HBO Aspen Comedy Festival, and it showed on Friday night, and I basically had to drive somehow. I basically had I had stayed up all night two nights in a row and by the time the uh awards ceremony was to come i went there optimistically thinking i was going to win something and of course if i was going to win something i would have been informed or something like that but i was standing behind morgan spurlock whose film supersize me had just hit and he gets a call and he's talking to the person he goes yeah oh oh okay sure yeah, I'd love one. And he hangs up and he goes, it's Volkswagen. They just, they just sent me a car. Uh, the world is just giving accolades to this guy. And uh, we're going to this award ceremony and Christopher Guest is on stage and they're giving him an award, like the HBO Comedy Award or something like that. And he couldn't have been l- less excited to win the HBO Comedy Award. And somebody did a big speech and then he comes on stage and goes, well, thank you for this, whatever it is. And uh, and he looks at the audience. Any questions? <laughs> that feels so on brand with him. And yeah, I thanks. asked. I thought he was serious. I said, "What's your next movie?" <laughs> and he said, "I'm out of here." And <laughs> just left. I'm like, ah oh, man, I'm the dumb shit. <laughs> Opened his mouth. I feel like a take man. your top off. Take your top off. I'm not going to talk. Some, <laughs> some loser douchebag in the audience didn't even get a Volkswagen. All right, that'll that'll be cut out. Um, the, also, that the the lyrics are so poignant. Do I think the the free love movement, the promise of the '60s, young people being different than their parents—they're not about material things. There's a kiss that's more precious than a band of gold. And there's this thing that's about relationships that's stronger than marriage. It's stronger than a piece of paper. It's called love. And that song encapsulates that sentiment and that sentiment of the time that has passed. And then we see later, Catherine O'Hara is married a businessman um, who loves probably his model trains more than he loves her. And all that idealism and stuff is just washed away from her life. And like, and she's just, she's just destitute of meaning without it. So, oh God, yeah. 
Oh, Manfredi. All right. My second choice. Make it a final f- spinal tap for Pete. Okay. Lick, <laughs> my, gonna, lick my love lick pump. My love pump is next. Yeah. <laughs> my next choice is uh, England's prefab for the Ruddles. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. Uh, with the song I Must Be in Love. Oh, wow. Which was the first song that uh, that the idea of the kind of the idea of doing this Beatles spoof mm-hmm. kind of came from this song, or the song was the first thing that was kind of presented to the world as the Ruddles. So the Ruddles came from Eric Idle's post Monty Python show, Rutland Weekend, Weekend Television. And it was a segment on basically this. It basically was a music video, like it was from A Hard Day's Night, of Rutland's most famous band, The Ruddles. And it was a song written by Neil Ennis, who also sang it and uh, kind of played the John Lennon-type character. And Neil Ennis had been uh, in the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, um, which had uh, actually performed in and had a song on the soundtrack of the Magical Mystery Tour. And their big their big song in the UK was I'm the Urban Space Man, which was actually produced by Paul McCartney. So there's all these neat Beatles connections yeah. with them. And the uh, it, was so, it was so well received that they decided to do a, a TV movie that was basically a two hour documentary about this fake band, the Ruddles. So it's, it's basically creating this world where there were, there were no Beatles, but there were Ruddles. And, you know, like I said, Neil Innes is, is the John character. Uh, Eric Idle is the Paul character. And Neil Innes had wrote like 20 songs all in the different styles of the Beatles yeah. periods throughout their history. Um, and it's, it's such a high wire act to try and write something that is a Beatles song without having it sound like you're copying a Beatles song. Like, I think that would be one of the hardest things to do is to try and write something like, write something that's in the style of A Hard Day's Night, mm-hmm. but it's but it's not close enough to it that we're going to get sued, Yeah, basically. Um, so uh, I Must Be In Love is, uh, like I said, it's kind of their Hard Day's Night era uh, song. It's got this kind of chiming, you know, 12-string guitars three-part harmonies, kind of everything you would expect from a, a Lennon and McCartney song of that era. And it stands up as, a, I mean, if, if it had been released as a Beatles song, it would be a pretty good, damn good Beatles song. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I, I grew up loving the Beatles and I grew up as a kid, you know, watching the Beatlemania documentaries and the complete Beatles and all that kind of stuff. So I, I was pretty well-versed at a young age with all of the backstory of the Beatles and their history and all the personal drama and all that stuff. So watching the Ruddles, which basically is almost year for year what happened to the Beatles, but all, like you said, kind of done kind of a twisted, everything's off about it a little bit sort of way. Um, just gave me nothing but joy. Yeah. I And uh the work that Neil Ennis, I, I think if it's decades later, I'm not surprised that people crack the code on a cultural phenomena because you have so much hindsight. But considering it was years later that Neil Ennis had probably been writing fake Beatles songs since the Beatles came around, but to be able to look back on their career and then kind of crack the code and have the enough removal from the tsunami of culture that the Beatles uh, uh, put out into the world. That I think is crazy. Like, I think people could maybe do a good painter now could probably do a Picasso from each of his periods. But at the time, there was no way you could understand. You couldn't crack the code of that guy, probably. Right. So yeah, that's so amazing. And I I think being so much in the pocket, I think Eric Idle is like George Harrison's BFF and these people being so close to that culture it also kind of helps remind one how funny the Beatles were. Like the Beatles were so interested in the goon show and British humor and stuff. So, yeah. By, by the way, they they made a sequel in 2000 called or 2002 called uh, "Can't Buy Me Lunch." Ah. Do, do not <laughs> do not seek it out. Oh no! <laughs> it is 
did is terrible. <laughs> Neil Innes's or Eric Idle, I don't think was was involved in it, if I remember correctly. Uh-huh. Or he was. Oh, he was involved in it. Neil Innes was sort of involved in it. Mm-hmm. Eric, I, it's it's late era Eric Idle, so approach it at your own discretion. Yeah. yeah. Um, although the uh, the archaeology uh, album that came out twenty years later which was their version of the Beatles anthology is very good. Cause that's basically just all Neil in his song. So you're uh-huh. in good shape with that. <laughs> Don't watch. Can't find me lunch. I cannot emphasize that enough. It is. Oh, no. oh boy. Not good. <laughs> okay. We are at our halftime. I'm going to beg you, implore you to download rate and review past episodes of the Mount Rushmore podcast. And we could also ask you to get in a dialogue. Let us know what kind of uh topics you'd love for us to tackle next uh what sacred cows you would love us to skewer trash and burn um we can be reached on facebook twitter and instagram it's safe to go back on twitter now it is it's true they're all gone they're all gone um so yeah so dudes we're back winfield what's your third choice um my third choice is uh, where let's okay. It's the song "Free Love Freeway" by David Brent <laughs> from the band Foregone Conclusion from the 2001 British Office episode "Training," in which David Brent just completely takes over, um, like kind of this uh, training session inside their office uh, at um in Slough uh, of their paper company, um, and just goes on this ridiculous you know david brent is such an interesting character he's so pathetic and he's so (laughs) into himself um but he sees himself as like this great talent he sees himself as this great um comedian and actor and manager and leader and musical talent and um he kind of puts this entire training session on hold for him to go and uh go home and get his guitar and come back and sing just this really (laughs) pathetic song that um uh is is so irritating to the trainer who's sitting there just trying to do any amount of work and um of course uh tim his you know the uh what's the What's the American version the, of Tim? The, the Jim Halpern character. The Jim Halpern, yes. Uh, uh, Tim is just, he's just egging him on. He just loves it. He doesn't want to work. He, he doesn't want to pay attention to any of this. And he just keeps um, encouraging him and interrupting him and trying to sing along with him on his kind of real um, sad and skeezy and dumb lyrics that don't really make any sense that are all these unfinished thoughts. And um, <laughs> it's just wonderful. And it's a song that... Um, has just stayed with me. I think what it is, it's a song that has just stayed with me for 20 years. It's a nothing, you know, it, it's a one-off song in, in the TV show. And it is just, I've got free love freeway, just rattling around my head all the time. And uh, I just love it. I don't, I don't know what to say. It's, it's not too terrible. It's not too terrible. The song, even though the lyrics are pretty, pretty it's just bad enough. It's bad yeah. enough. That it's just bad. It, it it it's catchy enough that it gets stuck in your head, but it's also bad enough that you're like, "Oh, this is not going to go well." Whenever he went to, doesn't he wind up quitting and like go like at the, at the end of the series and like goes tries to make it as a as a professional musician and fails miserably. I believe that's I th- what happens. I I I don't quite remember what the end of the. Sh- the it end of the show that I remember that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The end of the show that I remember was the the Tim and Don stuff. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny. It's less about you know. It's less about um Brent, even though the show mm-hmm. was about Brent, but all of the emotional baggage was carried between those two. But um, they eventually went and made like, um, you know, Ricky Gervais went and filmed a like a music video for this that they put out and it's like a fuller version of the song. Um, I think supposed to encapsulate as if David Brent had gone off and spent all his money to film a music video for this one mm-hmm. song. And <laughs> there's all these additional lyrics that I don't know. So it feels like it's this interesting 
the you know the full version of the song is this interesting kind of easter egg unknown thing to me but i just know it as the in the office setting of it and the constant interruptions by tim and all this stuff i'm inter- i'm fascinated by this because i'm i'm reading the wikipedia on this now mm-hmm. and apparently ricky Gervais uh did a live tour as david brent in the <laughs> foregone conclusion <laughs> Um, did a series of YouTube videos under the title Learn Guitar with David Brent <laughs> and published the David Brent songbook. Uh. Which, which to me kind of speaks to, yes, he would. I, it, it's confusing whether or not he is just taking the joke and running it to its natural foregone conclusion or whether or not there is a little bit of him trying to play out his past music aspirations because he actually was in a a new wave group that got signed to a record label and had a couple of singles out in the UK like back in like 19 like in the early 80s so I, I just there's always part of me whenever he, he picks up the guitar in the David Brent world where he's trying to relive that to some level I don't know mm. it's just find, find it very fascinating <laughs> he was also apparently he, he was also apparently the manager of Suede for a little while before they before they made made it big. <laughs> wow. I, every I, part of every part of me is like um, regretting not choosing a a song from Flight of the Concords right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm amazed when somebody can do bad good and do good bad when they have enough. Um, awareness to be able to satirize themselves or to take a thing that I imagine Ricky Gervais would have loved to. I imagine when he was a musician, he probably still had a sense of humor and he's, he might have been clowning around on stage and trying to be a comedian on stage. But when you would play the music, Sienna dancing or whatever his hit was or song was, I'm sure they were trying to play it. They were trying to be known as musicians. So the fact that he could do create write a bad song i'm just i'm just amazed when people can do that it's like i'm i'm amazed that william shatner has a sense of irony about oh jeff i'm capable i'm capable of writing bad songs (laughs) trust me i know how to write a bad song i know how to write a bad song um but yeah it's it's pretty fascinating to me um was it um creed bratton in the in the american office was a musician too right yeah he was in uh oh sure Blood, sweat, and tears. I think, the, I think. I, well, I'll pretend I didn't just wiki the grassroots. Grassroots, that's grassroots. what it was. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm always amazed when, when people can do things with a straight face, um, pretend to be a bad musician, <laughs> or to pretend to to think a song is good, even though he knows it's bad. So, that's so funny. Okay, uh, what do you got, Richard, for your third? All right, so I did mention a fake Beatles band, um, and I hesitated. Uh, with whether I was going to make this choice or not because I'd already gone down the Beatles route. But this is sort of a fake version of the American bands in the mid-60s attempting to be the Beatles. Oh. And I am talking about that thing you do. Oh, yeah. Okay. By The Wonders. Nice. From the uh, movie That Thing You Do. Nice. Um, And this song has to do a lot of heavy lifting because if you watch the movie, they play a few... They have, there's a few wonder songs in there, but that thing you do gets played a dozen times. Yeah. Like, I'm not kidding, during the course of this movie. So it has to be like a great song. It has to be like perfect. And it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a perfect song. Uh, written by Adam Schlesinger, uh, the late great uh, guitarist and songwriter from uh, Fountains of Wayne. Uh, did a lot of stuff on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Uh, obviously, someone who we lost last year and it was obviously a, a big loss for music. Uh, it was a song, there was a, I remember reading in the college, college music journal, which was the big industry trade for the college radio scene when I was in college doing college radio. And there was something like 300 different submissions mm-hmm. when the call went out that hey Tom Hanks is making this movie and they're looking for a 60 you know a 60s type song I guess they said like the Knickerbockers which was this like American kind of grot rock kind of want to be the Beatles band from that from that period and, like they might be giants submitted a song 
Gin Blossoms submitted a song, but this one just kind of stood out. And apparently they didn't really even have to do much from the demo. They pretty much just took the demo and, you know, re-recorded it, but it was pretty much a full and complete song. Yeah. Mike Viola tells a story about not wanting to do the vocal at all, <laughs> turning turning Adam Slicinger down multiple times because he didn't want to do, like he'd been out to LA, I don't want to do the Hollywood music thing. I don't want to be that guy. Yeah, he's like not credited correctly in the, in the movie. Uh-huh. He's like credited as, as like as assistant wardrobe producer or something mm-hmm. really goofy, like, mm-hmm. like funny, because he didn't want to be, uh, he thought it would be, it would be a detriment to his music career yeah if he was associated with the song and and of course years later it turned out to be anything but the case Mm -hmm. and it's i i I love the how it exists in the in the context of the movie that it's originally this kind of like mid-tempo almost like ballady type song and then guy aka shades the drummer when his first gig with them decides to just take it at this like super fast pace which the lead singer Jimmy initially is upset about until suddenly everyone responds to this up-tempo song and starts singing and dancing and kind of going nuts for it at this talent show and it kind of just turns the whole song and and the whole fortunes of the band on on its head so I love that kind of way that they sort of showed the evolution of this song which is something you could totally imagine hearing a story about some hit song from the 60s having that exact same storyline supposedly please please me was that song uh, oh really that it it was a, a mopey ballad and and either george martin suggested they play it faster or ringo was just playing fast and that was that was the reason that that one was at that tempo but it was a mopey lennon ballad so yeah. well, that's interesting yeah, yeah and i just i just there were so many of those i mean I mean, the, the movie hit, hit it on the head. There were so many of those like kind of one-hit wonder type bands wonders, yeah. Yeah. Um, that came out of the U.S. and, and, and England, too. It's mm-hmm. just attempting to follow the Beatles' lead. Mm-hmm. And again, I think, it, I think it's very hard to write kind of this, to, to, to get the sound of that right without like making it obvious and cliched. Yeah. And they did a great job with it. Yeah. I think that is Adam, one of Adam Schlesinger's gifts that you see playing throughout the all of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is we need a song that feels like Duran Duran, a feels like Barry White, but if it mm. feels just like one of those songs, then it's not good enough. It has to feel like something that would have been cut from the album or something so yeah it has to be like it has to feel like it's a deep cut and not necessarily the one song that everybody knows yeah absolutely Uh, um funny the or i got a chance to see mike and adam play that song at the hotel cafe and it was the funnest night of uh both mike viola and adam slicinger have had careers writing goofy songs for movies and i know mike wrote some uh, Adam wrote some for Josie and the Pussycats and Music and Lyrics, and um, Mike wrote some for Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. <laughs> so, so, and I think he wrote some for Get Him to the Greek too. So it was funny to hear them talk about you. You kind of got to write a good song, and then, but then, here are these two guys who are mostly musicians who also kind of want to be funny with the lyrics. So, but you can't be too funny. <laughs> you can't be too funny, or 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 it's winking at the camera. Um, but yeah, what a, what a fun night. Um, and Mike Viola has this kind of like, I've seen him play with the, um, wild honey orchestra and he's saying, Oh, darling. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, darling. The Beatles song. And that's just a belter. Like I think Paul McCartney had to cut that together from four or five different takes and Mike Viola nailed it just like one take live. So yeah, that's, that's tough. That's That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, man, Winfield, what's your fourth? My last choice is a song from the 2017 movie Coco. Oh, but it's not um, the big song. It's not Remember Me. Uh It's Un Poco Loco, Uh which is the little delightful song um, sung by Miguel and kind of sung and performed and danced by Miguel and Hector um, on stage at this 
just mentioned talent show sort of competition thing at this little talent show to earn like a spot to go be at um, Ernesto Miguel's supposed great, great grandfather's side during the last night of the day of the dead or uh, festivals. And um, the remember me song in this, in the movie is so beautiful, but this song just hits so hard. It is so joyous and so fun. And it really, um, stood out at a moment of this like real great bonding between um, Miguel and Hector, like performing on stage, you know, kind of um, across, um, you know, the, the eras of time. It's just so silly and the lyrics are so wonderfully done. And it was the song that in this movie about, you know, these fictional ghost people, these fictional uh, skeletons that just stood out the most to me that um, Miguel seems so at ease playing and so confident and so um, just so into it. And I, I just loved the balance between the two of uh, Miguel playing on stage and Hector taking his head off and dancing around and uh, just being so completely um easy together and I thought it, I thought it was just uh, the most it's probably like my favorite moment of that of that movie and um, I don't know it's the song is just this thing that that stuck with me I think a lot of the, the choices for my songs today are the ones that just stuck with me the most mm -hmm. they just they held my attention the most whether it was um, God I should have cho chosen um, um, Eat It Joe's or old Joe's garage. <laughs> that was the one that really stuck with me for um, just because how silly it was. I think yeah. there's definitely a, a, a vein of silliness through my choices, but. Well, isn't it, um, is there a time when they are considering, I don't know how much Miguel thinks uh, Hector is really helping him. Um, there's a moment where we don't know, obviously the Hector's real identity mm -hmm. and uh, he's, we know we know he's a con artist, or we believe him to be a con artist. We don't know why, what motivates that. Yeah. But at that point, the they you see chemistry between those two that is more than just acquaintances. You see something about how they interact and work together and, and are in each other's brains. That I don't uh, think there's yeah, I don't think there's like a need necessarily for like Hector to get on stage with Miguel in that moment. Like mm -hmm. he's he's performing the song and it's nice, and then he feels compelled to be up there. Mm -hmm. You you watch the scene, it's you know, Miguel can play the song and he's doing well, and then of course Hector's kind of like this kind of this hype man, this hype skeleton that comes out and <laughs> dances around. We all <laughs> and need breaks a hype it down. <laughs> we all need a hype skeleton to take off their head and do the worm or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I don't, you know, maybe it's that it, 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 maybe he couldn't, he couldn't help himself, but do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it is starting to reveal what Hector's true identity is to us, which is kind of a fun plot element, even though, we're just lost in the silliness of the song and uh, Miguel perhaps getting farther toward, towards his goal of being a real performer. So yeah, that's a fun that was choice. definitely, that was definitely a movie that I did not see all the breadcrumbs until like oh, yeah. way, way far along. It was concealed so well. It was, everything was so subtle in it. And it was just, mm -hmm. I, I, maybe I just didn't, maybe some movies just go in like willingly, like uh, ambivalent to it or just, yeah. You're just you're watching everything. I think the movie is so flashy that you don't see some things that are a little more obvious and on every, like rewatch. Everything about Ernesto is is heroic. Yeah. <laughs> so you you idolize this guy. He has to be the hero. And, and Pixar is so good at just like pulling the wool out, and yeah. pulling the wool over your eyes, and just uh, you know the the obvious good guy is never good, but mm -hmm. maybe they're not bad, but they're just a person they're an obstacle it's like um uh it's like toy story 4 you know the characters in there like there's no like super bad guy in toy story 4 although you think there is yeah because all the other ones had a bad guy mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. yeah they're all victims <laughs> uh man freddy what's your final choice so i really very much wanted to go with a monkey's song mm. as my last choice oh <clears throat> because 
they were a, I love the idea that they were a prefabricated band playing a band on television while also playing a band in real life. Mm-hmm. However, the more I sat down and thought about it, I thought, what's even better than a prefabricated band? How about a prefabricated band that doesn't even exist as humans? Ah. So I did what Don Kirshner did and recalibrated and went from the monkeys to the Archies ah. and chose oh, wow. the song Sugar Sugar. Oh, wow. And you want to talk about perfect pop songs. Yeah. I mean, this thing, and it's, I, I looked up the chords right now, and I, mm-hmm. Michael, I know you don't know where the, what a chord is, so just zone out for a second here. <clears throat> but And do. Yeah, it's, there's, th- it's a, there's three chords in the whole song. It is like the simplest song, but there's so many hooks mm-hmm. and, and little musical things happening in the background of the song. It's just fantastic. So Don Kirshner, who I mentioned, uh, was this kind of rock music impresario who basically created the monkeys. He's the one who chose the uh, chose the actors to become the band. He's the one who organized the songwriting, got kind of all the session musicians together. He was the producer of the monkeys. And, you know, for several years, it was a incredibly successful operation until those pesky kids decided they wanted more control over the over what they were putting out. They wanted to write songs. They wanted to be able to play instruments. And Don Kirshner was basically like, why would I do that? This is really successful, this thing that we've got going. This is a a great business operation. Why would I risk that by letting you guys screw it all up? So that led to a lot of tension, um, came to a head with uh, Mike Nesmith, punching a hole in a wall in an argument at a hotel and telling Don Kirshner that could have been your face. Oh, wow. He's like, I this guy Charlie Manson auditioned. He's less violent than you. No kidding. <laughs> so uh, Don Kirshner winds up getting himself fired from the monkeys. He loses the, the battle for creative control. Um, and his next gig is this cartoon based on the Archies, the, uh, or based on Archie, the, the comic book the allegedly funny comic book uh, (laughs) staple. And he basically said, I want a band that won't talk back. And so how do you do that? Well, you just make them all, you know, cells, you know, animation characters. Animation characters aren't going to talk back to you. They're not going to complain about their royalties. They're not going to complain that they don't get to write more songs. So this kind of, they kind of got, he created this, this kind of group of real session musicians, industry professionals to just come up with the biggest, dumbest pop songs you could think of for the Archies to sing as a, as a band that was, that the, the kids had put together. So that was kind of we where they tie in the music. And Sugar Sugar uh, was uh, written by Jeff Barry, who had written... Oh, he had written a lot of the big songs in the 19, early 1960s, a lot of those girl group songs. So like, uh, Then He Kissed Me, Be My Baby, Chapel oh, wow. of Love, Leader of the Pack. He co-wrote that with Andy Kim, who wound up having a number one song years later with uh, Rock Me Gently. And they had all these uh, great session musicians working on this song. And it's just hook after hook after yeah. hook. I mean, it basically invented, they're not quite invented, but it, it's its the premier example of bubblegum pop. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't have a more bubblegum pop song than Sugar Sugar. And I always appreciated the fact that Ron, Dan- Ron Dante was the lead singer of the Archies, or he's the one who did the lead singing. And uh, if you watch the Archies cartoon, which I don't recommend because it is like, sub Hanna Barbera <laughs> animation. It's like, you know, like the Beatles cartoon, how shitty the animations were that <laughs> it's even worse. Uh, but if you watch it, like Archie's voice, he had a very voice that was kind of like this, which sounds nothing like Ron Dante's mm-hmm. singing voice. So I just appreciate that there's just like this, there wasn't even an attempt to try and match what Archie would sound like singing with Archie's speaking voice. I just always appreciate they just didn't even give a shit about that. 
And this song was huge. It was the number one song for the year 1969. Wow. Think about that. The Summer of Love. All these amazing songs that are coming out. What's the biggest song of the year? Fucking Sugar Sugar. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, I mean, I guarantee you, this is a song, though. Now that I have mentioned the song and talked about it for a couple of minutes, you, the radio, the podcast listener, you have the song stuck in your head. Yeah. You, 100% you do. Yeah. That's a, uh, boy, it's a pretty great, that is a pretty great song. And it does, uh, I, I remember hearing that the Screen Gems that produced the monkeys, uh, one of the reasons radio hated them was because they weren't, and, and I, I think Sugar Sugar I read was pushed onto radio stations and said, play this, play this. And unlike the payola, by the, by the late 60s, radio had become this mach- very well-oiled machine in which promotional money was sent into the system to get records into, onto the airwaves. And when you have a show like The Monkees that is produced on, in a studio where the higher, they just hire the Neil Diamonds and the whoever's to make these songs, all of a sudden there's all this development and this money and this graft and this payola that doesn't go to DJs or record labels, doesn't go, it, and these songs go, people call and request these songs and they go on the radio without any of the tribute that's supposed to be paid <laughs> to those people. <laughs> and so I imagine Sugar Sugar was just a, as similar as a problem too. Like, hey, you fuckers, you're supposed to, you're supposed to wet our beaks a little bit before something hits number one. Yeah. Um, last thing on this that I got is, I know I've, told, I've, I've given many recommendations on what not to do in this episode. One thing I would recommend that you do do is seek out Wilson Pickett's cover version of Sugar Sugar. Not it heard that. is fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome. Also, Bob Marley and the Whalers also covered "Sugar Sugar," so it's a song that obviously has a lot of legs with a lot of very, wow. very famous and influential uh, musicians. Wow, um, that's pretty cool. That's a cool choice. Okay, guys, that was a fun topic. I liked it. Um, the things that I would love to pick are let's go with the cantina band song because i think that was a early influence for me (laughs) i um i would love to also um pick a kiss at the end of the rainbow because it brought a little tear to my eye when i saw it and definitely you can't not uh um, vote for spinal tap so let's go with big bottom and let's go with I, I'm tempted to go with that thing you would do, but let's go sugar sugar because I learned me a lot about that. So that was pretty awesome. That was pretty awesome. All right, dudes, this has been the Mount Rushmore of uh, songs that only exist in TV as movies. I, as always, am Jeff. I'm Richard. I'm Michael.